All right, well, if you'd all stand and get out your Bible, we're in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, looking at verse 14, uh, 14 through 16. And so I'm going to read it along for us. If you uh, need a Bible, you can grab the Pew Bible in front of you there. And that is on page, I'm going to tell you as soon as I get there myself, that's on page 965 in the Pew Bible. And so I encourage you uh, to turn there as I read. You follow along. But thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? The word of the Lord. You may be seated. All right, so this morning we continue on in our sermon series on 2 Corinthians, which we've been in now for a month or more. And here we are in chapter 2, verses 14 through 17. Paul is going to be taking us in a new direction. And uh, here's what I want to do this morning, not unusual for what we do most mornings. I want to I want to lay out a bit of the context or the, the flow of thought of where Paul is going. And last week, if you were here, I spent a good deal of time laying out some of the historical context that lies underneath uh, Paul's letter to the Corinthians. And if you missed last week, it's too bad because it was brilliant. I had a map and everything for the context. So anyway, you can watch, the, watch, watch it online. But we're not going to spend as much time uh, on the context and actually look, at, look a little bit different, uh, but I want to help us see the overall flow of thought in Paul's letter because he's going to make some moves here that will be helpful to see where he's going in the overall letter. So we're going to look at some, some flow of thought context, and then uh, we're going to get into our text, and I want to look at our text and then draw out two points of application uh, from each sort of portions of our text. So, like last week, word of context, then our texts, and then two points of application. All right, so our context. You're going to need your Bible open for this, which fortunately isn't a problem because all of you are so good about bringing your Bibles to church. Thank you for that. Which, let me just say this as an aside. Bibles on your phones are fine. Those are better than nothing. But the problem with your phone Bible is you can't as easily see the flow of context. So you only got like one part on your screen there. So I say, call me old-fashioned, but bring back the paper Bibles. That's what I say. So if you don't have your paper Bible with you this morning, no judgment upon you, but get out the pew Bible in front of you because I want you to follow along in the paper Bible to kind of see this overall flow here. As you recall from last week in verses 12 through 13, chapter 2, Paul informed the Corinthians that he was telling them about his travel plans to Macedonia and meeting Titus. Then we get to verse 14, and he begins what seems like an entirely new train of thought. And for the next four chapters, Paul doesn't mention Macedonia, doesn't mention Titus, doesn't mention his conflict in Corinth. He just talks about his apostolic suffering. But then we get to seven five through eight. So hold your finger in chapter two where we are. You can just probably turn over one page and look at chapter seven, five through eight. 
So for four chapters, he talks about his apostolic suffering. And then in verse 5, he says, of chapter 7, For even when we came to Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you, as he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced still more. So in chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, Paul was talking about going to Macedonia to meet Titus, to hear a word from the Corinthians. Then he talks for four chapters about his apostolic suffering. And though without missing a beat, he jumps back in in chapter 7, verse 5, again about going to Macedonia and how when he got to Macedonia, it was pretty tough. There was fighting without, there was fear within, but God comforted them because he sent them Titus with not only a word from Titus, it was good to see him, but also a word from the Corinthians, which was good to see and hear a good word from the Corinthians. And then he goes on to the remainder of chapter seven, talking about this word that Titus brought from Corinth about the situation that Paul had been addressing in chapter two. Now, it's not immediately clear to those of us on the outside why Paul makes this abrupt shift to talk about his apostolic suffering. Scholars have observed that chapter 2, verse 14, to chapter 7, verse 4, is the longest digression in the New Testament. Paul is known for some of his digressions, but this is by far not only the longest Pauline digression, this is the longest digression in the New Testament. But once we get inside Paul's head, we can see that he's connecting some dots for the Corinthians that the Corinthians need connected. But what is it that triggers this long discourse on apostolic suffering? Well, I think there's two things. First, and most immediately, when Paul recounts in chapter 2 his travels into Macedonia to meet Titus, he's reminded of the suffering that came with that encounter. As he tells us in verse Seven, that when he got to Macedonia and met Titus, there was fighting without, there was fear within. He talks about uh, God comforting them in the midst of their downcast spirit with the coming of Titus. So when Paul, got to, Paul raced ahead to Macedonia to meet Titus, when he got there, it didn't go easy for him. It was a difficult and challenging time. It was full of apostolic suffering. So as he recounts to the Corinthians in chapter 2 about going to Macedonia, He's reminded of his apostolic suffering. But then even more importantly, I think Paul launches into this long discourse on apostolic suffering because one of his primary purposes for writing to the Corinthians was to combat their unhealthy theology of glory. And that's beca that becomes increasingly clear the more we move through the letter of 2 Corinthians. As we noted in the very first week of the series, the Corinthians had fallen under the influence of these super apostles, kind of first century equivalent of prosperity gospel preachers. And Paul's going to bring this up specifically in chapter 11. And the Corinthians, they had developed the mistaken belief that their participation in Christ would always lead them from victory to victory, from glory to glory. Christ had risen from the dead and ascended into heaven. We Christians are the ones who are with Christ, and therefore we sit with Christ on high in victory and glory in heaven. Therefore, when one becomes a Christian, one can expect to go from triumph to triumph, following Christ in his victory parade. But Paul's own experience as an apostle had been very different. 
Paul had been beaten. He had been mocked. He had been stoned and left for dead. He had been jailed, and he had generally been persecuted, not only by his own people, the Jewish people, but also by the, by the pagan Gentiles. Indeed, all of the original apostles were martyred or John died in exile, which is essentially like a living martyrship. And of course, Jesus was also martyred. So Paul is writing to disabuse the Corinthians of their mistaken belief that following Christ will always lead to victory and glory. And over the next four chapters, he's going to use his own life as evidence to the contrary. So it might seem like he's launching into some new random digression about apostolic suffering. In reality, his digression is triggered by his remembering his time in Macedonia, and then he stays with it because this is the whole point of why he's writing. He wants the Corinthians to reject their theology of glory and to embrace a theology of the cross. All right, so that brings us to verse 14, and I'm going to observe a point and then apply it. I'm going to do that uh, in verse 14, and then we'll move in uh, to the remainder of, of verses 15 and 16. So here's the first point that I want to observe from verse 14. Christ leads us into suffering. It's point one. Paul begins verse 14 by ascribing thanks to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. Now, to modern ears, that sounds like a good thing. I mean, who doesn't want to be led in triumphal procession? It makes me think of that last scene in Star Wars, A New Hope, when after blowing up the Death Star, Han Solo, Chewie, and Luke Skywalker are processed down to the front of the victory ceremony, and Princess Leia hangs the gold medallions over their necks. Now, wait a minute, the discerning parishioner objects. That sounds like victory and glory, and I thought you said Paul is writing against victory and glory. Well, that's very discerning of you. Because just because verse 14 makes modern ears think of Star Wars, in truth, verse 14 is not a statement about Christian victory and glory, but about Christian defeat and shame. In the Greco-Roman world, a triumphal procession was a formal victory parade that celebrated the victory of a triumphant Roman general. And so here's how a, tri how a triumph, this is what it'd be, and the triumphal procession would work. At the front of the parade, walking in chains, came a sampling of the captives that the general had defeated in battle. So he'd go off to some province, he would defeat some nation or some enemy of Rome, and then he would bring back to Rome for his triumph celebration, a sampling of who he had defeated. And then the captives walking in chains would be followed by their weaponry, their armor, their gold, silver, other treasures carted behind them in, on display for all to see. Then next would come the Roman senators, the civic leaders. And then behind them came the general in his four-horse chariot, surrounded by his officers, and then behind them came the general's soldiers, dressed in white with laurel crowns, chanting, Hail Triumphe! Hail the Triumph! Hail the Triumphant! 
And all this was done to the accompaniment of music, clouds of incense, and the strewing of flowers. Now, we might be inclined to think that the term led in triumph is referring to the general's troops. But in actuality, the expression led in triumph in the Greek language and in the Greek cultural setting always referred to the chained captives. They were the ones being led in triumph. They were being led by the senator, the great powers of Rome, the general who had enacted the senator's powers, and then the troops who had enacted the general's powers. And during a triumph, the whole city would be put on holiday, and the citizens would come out to cheer and to celebrate the general's triumph as he and his army and the senators led the chained captives in triumphal procession. The triumph would eventually end at the temple of Jupiter, where the captives would be ceremoniously strangled before the cheering crowds. All of which is to say, it was not a good thing to be led in triumphal procession. So instead of this conjuring up thoughts of Star Wars, A New Hope, this should conjure up the scene at the end of Braveheart, where William Wallace is led out to be executed. But I haven't seen Braveheart, you say. That's okay. I've got another scene for you. Do you remember that scene at the end of the Gospels where Jesus is led out to be executed? It's like that. And that's Paul's point. The Corinthians saw themselves as the officers and soldiers of the conquering general. But Paul is saying, no, that's the wrong picture. We Christians follow in the example of the crucified Christ. We are not those who put others to death. We are those who are put to death. Yes, glory came to Christ, but only after he was first led in triumphal procession to his death. And yes, glory comes to us too, but only after we are first led in triumphal procession to our death. This idea that Christ leads his people in triumphal procession to their death can be hard for us to get around. And I'll just say the more indebted we are to a theology of glory, the more we resonate with the prosperity preachers of our day, the more this idea is jarring and at dissonance. So much so that some interpreters in the past have tried to read Paul as meaning that the Christians are like the general's troops. But that's, that's not the point. And the Greek language, for reasons I won't try to explain here, make it unmistakably clear that Paul intends the Corinthians to see themselves as Christ's captives being led to death, not Christ's soldiers celebrating victory. And Paul is going to spend the next four chapters talking about that very thing, about his apostolic ministry and how he went out to preach the gospel and how he suffered for it and what it meant for him to suffer and ultimately die with Jesus. Because the whole point of Christianity as Jesus told us in the Gospels, as Paul is reminding the Corinthians here, as our baptism today teaches us, is that we die with Christ in order to rise with Christ, that we lose our lives in order to find them, that we must recognize that we are lost 
before we can be found. That we must become blind to the wisdom of the world before we can see the wisdom of God. That we must acknowledge ourselves as sinners before we can be saved. In Christianity, death is the great enemy. It's been brought about by sin. For the wages of sin is death. Death is the unraveling of all that God has made. It is the great problem that Jesus came to solve. So it's natural that we humans and our natural selves fear death and that we run from death and that we spend our whole death-pocked lives trying to distract ourselves from the fact that death is the common destiny of all of us. But try as we may, we cannot get away from it. Every instance of pain, every point of suffering, every cross that we have to bear is just a harbinger of death that is waiting for all of us. All the parenting crosses, all the marriage crosses, the work crosses, the health crosses, the teenage crosses, the racial crosses, the gender crosses, the early childhood trauma crosses, all of the crosses that are unique to your life, and to my life that no one else shares or knows or understands. All of these crosses are just the early tremors of the great quake that is coming for all of us. And if that were the end of the gospel story, well, then we would all just have to despair. But Jesus steps into this death-filled world and he says, don't be afraid of death. I was the first to be led in triumphal procession. And I have gone deeper into the shadowed valley than you will ever have to go. You are right to fear death in your natural self. And if you go it alone, there will be no way out. But you need not fear death if I am with you. I have been through it and out the other side. Take my hand and let me lead you. Now, yes, for sure, there are times when Jesus protects us and he leads us away from suffering. He doesn't make us carry every cross that the world has erected. And not every sickness ends in death. And thank God for his gentleness and his compassion and kindness. But Jesus knows that we cannot always avoid death and crosses. And he also knows that every sickness does end in death. There is no way to get out of this life alive. Death is the common destiny of every single individual. And he knows that in order to live, to truly live, we must first die. And he knows that our truest joy comes when we learn to die to death and to self, and we find the life that waits for us on the other side. Not just the other side of the final great cataclysmic death with a capital D, but on the other side of all the little deaths that we try to avoid day in and day out, that we try to squirm our way out of. So now where do we go with this point? That Christ leads us into suffering, that Christ leads us in triumphal procession. And I think this is the point of application that I would have. 
Don't be afraid to let Jesus lead you in triumphal procession. Perhaps this morning, perhaps this week, perhaps this month or this season of life, you're facing your own personal triumphal procession. There's some decision you know Christ is calling you to make, something he wants you to do, perhaps, some path he is asking you to walk. But you're terrified of the execution that waits at the end of the road. You're scared of what your obedience to Christ will cost you. Christ is asking you to let him lead you. But you're scared to be led. And I've been there. And I get that. And you have all my sympathies. And what's more, you have all of Christ's sympathies. Because he's been there. And he also gets that. And it may feel like he is leading you to your death, and he is leading you to your death. But the death he's leading you to is death from sin, and death from doubt, and death from the old way of living into the freedom and to the joy of the children of God. In verse 16, Paul asks rhetorically, who is sufficient for these things? Meaning, who is sufficient to let themselves be led in triumphal procession? And the answer is no one and everyone who is in Christ. In all the little deaths that we must undergo in the great final death of our lives, Jesus doesn't just leave us to our own devices. He leads us. He leads us in triumphal procession. Not some cold, unsympathetic, conquering general general, who wants to shame us and execute us and leave us for dead, but our shepherd and our friend and the lover of our souls who wants to put an end to the death and sin inside of us so that we can truly experience joy and life. So if Christ is leading you uniquely into a triumphal procession, if this is some season of life where he's asking you to follow him into this path of the shadowed valley. Don't resist him. Just keep your eyes fixed on the loving eyes of Jesus. He seeks your good. He seeks your thriving and your joy and your happiness. And he loves you. Don't forget that he loves you. And he knows that the only way past it is through it. So don't be too afraid to let him lead you in triumphal procession. It's okay to be afraid, but don't be too afraid to let him lead you in triumphal procession. So that's the first point. Second point is this. We are the aroma of Christ when we endure suffering with joy. Or the aroma of Christ when we endure suffering with joy. In the second half of verse 14, Paul says that through us, the aroma of Christ spreads everywhere to all people. And that this one aroma of Christ that wafts out from us means two different things to different people. To those who are perishing, the aroma of Christ means death to death. To those who are being saved, it means life to life. And here Paul is drawing an allusion to the incense 
that would accompany the Roman triumphal procession. As the parade would travel through the city, it would wind its way through the city, and the pagan priests would burn incense in honor of their gods. So all throughout the triumphal procession, you would, you would smell the incense of the triumph. And the triumphal incense meant different things to two different groups of people. To the victorious Romans, the smell of the incense was the smell of victory and life. But to the captives who were being led to their deaths, the smell of the incense was the harbinger of death. And it's the same with the aroma of Christ, Paul is saying. Paul says that when we are led in triumphal procession by Christ, we are the aroma of death to those who are perishing, and we are the aroma of life to those who are being saved. Now, what we just learned about what it means to be led in triumphal procession influences, perhaps even changes the way that we think about the aroma of Christ that we are giving off. If we think about the triumphal procession, like a victory procession at the end of Star Wars, then we're going to be inclined to think of the aroma that we're giving off as a glorious and a good thing. There we are, dressed in clean white robes, wearing laurel crowns, marching through the city, giving off the scent of Christ's victory and glory to all who are watching. And all the unrepentant pagans who are living in sin and darkness around us, they catch the scent of our glory and the smell of our Christological goodness. And it all serves to them as a convicting reminder that judgment is coming. And our victory is a reminder to them of their defeat. Our glory is a reminder to them of their shame. But then, in the opposite direction, when the repentant sinners catch a whiff of Christ's glorious scent drifting off of us, the smell of our Christological goodness and glory is the scent of life and a reminder of God's truth and deliverance. Our glory reminds them of their coming glory, what they are repenting into. All of which is to say, from a theology of glory perspective, the aroma of Christ that we give off is Christ's glory, his immortality and his goodness and his life. And so from this perspective, us Christians walk around in our white robes with our noses in the air, convicting and inspiring everyone by the mere presence of our glory. And if people have a problem with that, well, that's their problem. And it probably just shows that they're unrepentant sinners who are headed for hell anyway, and there's nothing that we can do about it. Now, this way of thinking about the aroma of Christ is, I submit to you, almost exactly wrong. It's the exact opposite of the point that Paul is making. When Paul says that we give off the aroma of Christ, he isn't referring to the aroma of Christ's glory, but to the aroma of Christ's suffering and Christ's shame. That's the whole point of what it means to be led in triumphal procession. So here's how it really works. When those who are resisting God, those who are already perishing, already living in shame, when they catch a whiff of Christ's suffering and death emanating off of us, when they feel our public shame, they say, man, that stinks. That is odious. I want no part of that shame. The shame of suffering and death is what I'm running away from. 
if Christians are marked by death and shame, then count me out. That's the death to death that Paul is talking about. The scent of Christ's death just reminds those who are living in death of more death. But here's the glorious truth of the gospel. Where there is death with Christ, there is also life. And where there is shame, there is also grace. When we are led in triumphal procession by Jesus, we Christians are not only perishing, we are also rejoicing. Look back at verse 14, the very first words in, that Paul writes. We say like Paul, thanks be to God, even as we are being led in triumphal procession to our deaths. And the reason that we are thanking God, the reason that we are rejoicing is because we know that even though we are jars of clay, which Paul will use this analogy in chapter 4, verse 7, even though we are jars of clay destined to be broken, Within these jars of clay burns the surpassing power of God's divine light, a priceless treasure. And, if, and, it's, and it's as we are broken open that the light of God shines out into the darkness. And this is why Paul can say, as he's going to say in chapter 4, that Christians are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We're perplexed, but we're not driven to despair. We're persecuted, but we're not forsaken. We're struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may be also manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our mortal flesh. So Paul says, we do not lose heart. Though the outer self is wasting away, the inner self is being renewed day by day. And that's the aroma of Christ that is life to life for those who are being saved. Those who are being saved smell upon us the aroma of Christ's life emanating out from our brokenness. They see our joy and our perseverance and faith in the midst of our suffering and hardship. They see in our rejoicing a hope that is deeper than our suffering, a grace that is greater than our shame, and a joy that is higher than all the other joys of the world. The people who are being saved are drawn to God not because they see our glory in the midst of victory, you can find glory in the midst of victory everywhere you look in this world. There's nothing particularly compelling about glory in the midst of victory. But they're drawn to God because they see our joy in the midst of our earthly defeat and shame. And that's the power of the gospel that the world cannot match. All right, so how do we apply this truth? And I would say, here's the application. Don't hide your suffering and your shame. We're not doing the gospel any favors when we hide our suffering and our shame. Let me apply this truth in kind of two different contexts or two different directions. First, as it relates to us here in the church. We Christians can be like the Corinthians, I think. We work 
so hard sometimes to give off the scent of glory and victory. Not just to the world, but to each other. Like we show up on Sunday mornings, we dress up, we make ourselves look as good as we can, we smile even though we've been yelling at the kids or yelling at our spouse, and we give off the scent of glory and victory when we show up in church. Now, thanks be to God, He does give us triumphs and victories in faith, and that's something to be grateful for. But for as long as we travel in this life, our lives will inevitably be marked by defeats and by failures and by shame. There's no way to get around it. And the natural instinct to self-protect and hide our shortcomings from each other, while it's natural, isn't the path to healing. That's not how we entered into God's grace in the first place. We didn't become Christians by hiding our sin and our shame and our sorrow and our defeats. We became Christians by laying them out on the table and accepting God's grace and redemption. And we need to continue living in that path. Only when we own our sin and shame does the jar of clay crack open and the light of God's grace shine through. And I need to see God's grace shining through the cracks in your life. And you need to see God's grace shining through the cracks in my life. And we all need to see God's grace shining through the cracks in each other's lives. And it's only when we let ourselves enter into and acknowledge our shame and our brokenness that God's light is able to shine through. So if you're always reflexively inclined to put your best Christian foot forward, let me encourage you to focus less on a theology of glory and more on a theology of the cross. Perhaps you've been struggling with a sin that you haven't been able to shake or some addictive pattern you haven't been able to break free of. And you know, you know, that the Lord is calling you to go to CR, our Celebrate Recovery Addiction Ministry here. And the Lord's made that very clear to you. He's asking you to do it. But the reason that you're resisting is not because you don't have time, not just because you're too busy, the reason you're resisting is because you want to avoid the shame that will inevitably come when you enter into that space. You don't want people to know that you're broken. You don't want people to know that you're addicted or that you can't break free of something. Or maybe you know that the Lord is prompting you to confess some sin to your small group. Maybe it's not an addictive pattern. It doesn't go back years and years, but it's just something that you need to bring out into the open and acknowledge publicly and have your, your trusted friends in your small group pray over you and confirm God's forgiveness in your life. Or perhaps the Lord is leading you to be more honest and open, some of your closest friends or your close friends, about the struggles in your marriage or the struggles with your children or the doubts that you have with your faith. And when your friends ask you how things are going, you smile and say that things are going great, but you know that they don't know that things aren't going great, that marriage isn't going well, that parenting isn't going well, that your head is full of all sorts of doubts about the goodness and integrity of your faith. 
But you hide all of those things because you don't want the shame that comes with acknowledging your weakness and your brokenness. The light of God can never shine through us if we always keep taping over all of the cracks. I think that's so much what we do. Our jar of clay begins to crack and we immediately put some duct tape over it to hide it. But in hiding the crack, we're hiding the place that the light of God would shine out of. When you stop hiding your shame and hiding from your shame, the life that Jesus gives you will be life to life, not only for yourself, it will be life to life for others that see the light of God coming through you. Now, I'm not saying there isn't shame. There is shame. There is proper shame that comes with addiction and sin and broken marriages and parenting failures. Our therapeutic world right now will try to get you to move away from shame. They will say shame is bad. You shouldn't feel shame. Sometimes we should feel shame. And the fact that we're always trying to hide it is because we know it's bad. We do want to try to hide our shame. Of course there's shame. But deeper than the proper shame is proper grace and God's redemptive love. And God's love meets us in our shame and heals us. So I think the first thing that this teaches us, or the way this applies rather to our context here as Christians at Calvary, is that we need to not always try to hide our shame behind a theology of glory, but to acknowledge our brokenness and our weakness as Christ leads us in triumphal procession into paths that expose us in our shame. This is a great context to do it because you all are loving and kind people. And if there's ever a safe community where we can be true and honest with each other, this is a community for it. But here's a way to apply this now outside the walls of church. In the same way, we shouldn't hide our shame and suffering from our fellow Christians. We shouldn't hide our shame and suffering from our fellow humans. Sometimes the reason we resist being led in triumphal procession by Christ is precisely because of the inherent public shame that comes with the aroma of Christ. Simply stated, we don't want to stink to the world around us. And listen, I, I feel that too. Right? Don't, don't all think that I just somehow float above any concerns about public shame. Your sermons aren't getting broadcast onto social media, right? Your positions and the things that you say and believe. I'm very aware that I pastor a church that holds positions that are morally odious to our local community. And I'm very aware that holding and affirming those positions runs the very real risk of making me morally odious to my local community, to my local community. And students, you know what I'm talking about. You know it better than your parents do. And if you were into amens, I would say, can I get an amen? Amen. I wanted to hear from the students, though, but, you know, parents, thank you for your, your help. 
You know how hard it is to be in the schools and hold to your faith because there are elements of your faith that entail positions and beliefs that are odious to your local school community. We had a student here at Calvary a number of months ago. Uh, he wrote a, a gentle and gracious article. And truly, it was a, I read it. It was a very gentle and gracious article for the OPRF, OPRF school newspaper arguing for a pro-life position. And if you were in the school, you know what I'm talking about because the school just erupted for a few days. And this student received death threats on social media. His address was posted on social media with admonitions to go and do things to his house and to burn his house down. His family had to call the police to do police drive-bys for protection. And many of the students were threatening to walk out of the school in protest, organizing a school walkout. And the other Christian kids that I talked to during that time expressed a good deal of anxiety about what was going on in the school. And most of them just wanted to keep their heads down and not get pulled into the fray. I suspect that many of them just wish she hadn't written the article, that we could all just pretend that we don't hold those positions. And I get that. I get the challenge that you feel. You feel it greater than I do, but I, I get it. And I'm not saying that we should walk around with placards and signs wearing sandwich boards that announce our allegiance to everything our community finds objectionable. Nor am I saying that we should open every conversation with unbelievers with the most jarring truths of Christianity. We shouldn't. The pattern that we see in the Gospels with Jesus, that we see in Acts with the Apostles, is that we begin sharing our faith by emphasizing the points of agreement and by continuity that we have with those that we're witnessing to, not the points of difference and divergence. But at some point, at some point, all of us who name the name of Christ have to come to terms with the fact that Christ does indeed call us into practices and beliefs that the world will find odious. And that's not just unique to our culture or unique to Oak Park. We don't need to turn ourselves into some unique martyr. Right? This is just how it's always ever been in the history of Christianity from day one. It's why all the apostles were martyred. And it's okay. It's not fun, but it is okay. And it's not always as bad as it could be. And it's not as bad as it could be. But it's okay. Because the truth and love and joy of Christ breaks out into the world only when Christ's followers aren't afraid to be broken open. And that's the whole point that Paul is going to make in the next four chapters as he details all of his apostolic suffering, all the ways that he moved throughout the Roman world preaching the gospel, it just constantly broke him open. He, he experienced public shame from his own people, as I said, from the world, as I said. There's not a way to communicate the gospel that doesn't in some way, at some point, at some time, rub some people wrong. 
And there is public shame that comes with the gospel. I don't want to overemphasize that again or turn it into something that it isn't always because it's not always just one big mark of shame. But the reality is that there is a cost that comes with proclaiming the gospel and owning the gospel. This is the triumphal procession that Jesus asks us to walk down. And the light of God's love, the very beginning, came into the world through a cross, a capital C cross. And you and I are called as little Christs to extend that love with all of our little crosses. We don't have to carry Christ's cross, thank God, because none of us can carry that cross. And we don't even have to carry each other's crosses because some of us have bigger crosses than others. We just have to carry our cross. So whatever it is that that Christ is asking you to carry. That's the cross. And your cross might be bigger than mine, it might be smaller than mine, but it's yours that he's given uniquely to you to carry the message of Christ's cruciformity and goodness, to be broken open in your community, in your environment, in your space, so that the light of God can shine through your suffering and your pain and your shame. We're not all called to the same crosses and we're not all called to write articles for the school newspaper. But we are all called to let ourselves be led by Christ in triumphal procession. To let ourselves be led by Christ. We don't lead ourselves. We don't have to come up with our own triumphal procession. Just follow in the footsteps of Christ. So let me encourage you to let yourself be led. Not just as it relates to being here at the church, but as it relates outside the church. Be willing to follow where Jesus leads you. If he leads you in triumphal procession down that hallway or in this neighborhood or at that workplace or at this family gathering, if he's leading you, let yourself be led. It's not because he has it in for you. It's because he loves you. It's also because he loves the people, the context in which you live. And he wants his light and his love and his life to shine into their lives too. And he'll do it through you as you let yourself be broken open for the sake of the gospel. Let's pray. Father, Lord, you... uh, We thank you that you sent Christ to walk a path of cruciformity, to be led in triumphal procession, and that he knows the way and that he can lead us into our own paths of cruciformity and triumphal procession. And I pray that you would help us, Lord, to keep our eyes fixed on the eyes of Christ to not let ourselves be daunted by the waves and the winds around us, but to just keep our eyes fixed on Jesus and to trust him. And most fundamentally, Lord, that we would be able to trust his love and to trust your love for us. God, help us to trust that you want our best and you want what's best for those that you administer to through us. So God, may we embrace your love and extend it to others, we pray. In your son's name, amen.